Our second uh, lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. Uh, Last week we took a brief departure from our study through the Gospel in order that we might observe Pentecost, and we return today to the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. So, again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to follow along and encourage you to listen carefully now to God's holy an inspired word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. As we have noted over the last many weeks, the animosity of the Pharisees has been steadily growing towards Jesus. For every sign that Jesus has performed, for every verbal altercation they have had with Him, for every public opinion poll that has been informally taken, all of it has underscored the feeling that their power and influence has been slipping away. The final straw came when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days, For this sign convinced a great number of people that Jesus was Messiah. And these new adherents caused the Jewish leadership to conclude that Jesus must die if they had any hope of holding on to their power and their position. They were only partially correct. Jesus did indeed have to die, but it was not so they could hold on to their power and position It was so that Jesus could satisfy the covenantal demands of the Father and thereby be given all authority in heaven and on earth and then be seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, this resolution of the Jewish 
counsel to put Jesus to death resulted in Jesus retreating to Ephraim near the wilderness until the stage was properly set for his return. And John gives us a clue that the stage is now set when he introduces this episode with the phrase, six days before the Passover. We have noted John's attention to detail where the religious holy days are concerned because they mark time for us, but they also provide a dramatic backdrop for many of the discourses that Jesus shares in regards to them. In this case, all the prophetic declarations that have been made by John the Baptist and Caiaphas the high priest, as well as Jesus himself, are summarized in the meaning of Passover. By the providence of God, Jesus' death at Passover will forever be associated with that moment when the people are remembering the way in which God spared them from the angel of death in ancient Egypt when the blood of the sacrificed lamb was spread across the lintel and the doorposts of their homes as a sign that those within are trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the same way, all those who trust in the sacrifice of Christ shall be spared from the wrath of God. Now when John says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, we believe that this means that Jesus and the twelve arrived sometime on Friday, the week before his own death, just before the start of that week's Sabbath, which would have been at sundown. And it appears as Jesus is making his final journey with Calvary as his last stop, he desires to spend his last Sabbath with his closest friends. We have a sense that whenever Jesus was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, that it was customary for him to enjoy the fellowship and the hospitality of Lazarus and his sisters to such a degree that whenever there was a pilgrimage feast, this family anticipated and planned for Jesus' visit. And so, as the Sabbath then comes to an end on Saturday at sundown, a dinner has been in the making that seeks to honor Jesus for the great gift that He has afforded them by the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. The other Gospel writers indicate that this dinner was held in the home of Simon the leper, whose name may suggest that he too was once a recipient of a miraculous work of Jesus, a work that would have gained even more favor among the residents of Bethany. In any event, this meal seeks to honor Jesus for all that he has done. And in true oriental fashion, these men attending are reclining around a low U-shaped table that allows them to comfortably lean on one elbow, engage one another in conversation while they eat, with their legs stretched out on the floor behind them. Martha has taken on the responsibility of serving these men, perhaps with Mary, for a time. But there comes a moment when Mary engages in a special act of thanksgiving that is somewhat spontaneous, although not without plenty of forethought. And John indicates that Mary took a pound, a Roman litra, which would be the equivalent of about 12 liquid ounces 
of pure nard and began to anoint Jesus with it. In an act of great love and devotion to her Lord, she assumes the role of a servant and she anoints His feet. The other Gospel writers indicate that she anointed Jesus from head to toe, but John focuses on the anointing of Jesus' feet, perhaps in a quiet affirmation to the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And then in an act of quiet abandon and contrary to the social standards of her culture, Mary lets down her hair in order to wipe the excess away. And while she was probably aware that others might seek to shame her for doing so, she does not seem to care, for this is her Lord. There is nothing that she will not suffer for His sake for He is in the process of delivering her. He has saved her brother. He has saved their family. He has opened their eyes to His identity as Messiah. He will be the one who will deliver Israel. And she desires to express her gratitude and thanksgiving by anointing Him. For she has received insight into what is unfolding. Now, to understand the extravagance of her offering, it would be helpful to know that the essence of this ointment, according to one commentator, came from an aromatic herb grown in the high pasture lands of the Himalayas between Tibet and India. That is a distance of about 3,000 miles as the crow flies, but much further when you consider the logistical difficulties involved with transporting such an item safely by camel or some other beast of burden along winding roads in vast deserted places. John describes it not simply as nard, but as pure nard, emphasizing its clarity and its concentration. Judas estimates its value as that of a year's salary for a common laborer. Now we have said before that Lazarus and his sisters appear to be people of some means, and the fact that Mary has such a pricey possession as this adds weight to that assessment. What we cannot know with certainty is how or when she came to be in possession of this expensive fragrance. There are those who have speculated that this was a family heirloom. But if that was the case, then why was it not used at the time of Lazarus' death several weeks before? Or there are those who have thought that it was left over from Lazarus' burial. But that does not seem plausible given that Matthew and Mark indicate that in order to do this, she had to break open an alabaster flask. In other words, this ointment had not been scooped up and saved in an open container from a previous time. It was still sealed and required her to open it by breaking the flask. Jesus offers a hint when He reprimands Judas and any others who may have thought her act in outrageous excess when He says, Leave her alone. It was so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. Now, if that translation of verse 7 is the most accurate, 
it indicates that Mary has been anticipating Jesus' impending death in a way that others around Jesus have not been so eager to consider. It indicates that Mary has intentionally acquired this pure nard for the day of Jesus' death and has now perhaps come to the conclusion that she might not have the opportunity to use it in that moment if the authorities decide to move violently against Jesus. Her use of the pure nard now gives indication that Mary is decidedly more in tune with what is about to occur than anyone else in this room. What Judas claims to be so offended by is the extravagance of Mary's anointing. He does not take issue with her anointing his feet, although such an action would normally be the work of a servant of the house. Nor does he take issue with her loosening her hair, which would have been considered a shameful thing for a woman to do in the company of men other than a husband. His outrage has to do with the excessive extravagance. John, of course, sets the record straight on Judas's real motives when he indicates that the man was a thief who was seeing a missed opportunity to increase the common purse. Presumably, Lazarus' family had contributed to Jesus' ministry throughout the past three years or so, and Judas was accustomed to receiving their generosity. But here he sees a year's worth of wages being expended on Jesus in a way that offends him. So what John has provided us here with is a stark contrast between two people who were both connected to Jesus, but to whom Jesus was not equally connected. Now what do we mean by that? Well, in both cases, these people were called by Jesus to follow Him. They were both afforded the opportunity to listen to Christ's teaching. They were both afforded the opportunity to witness firsthand Christ's miraculous signs. They were both afforded the opportunity to commune with Him, to break bread with Him, to pray with Him, to worship with Him. But their reaction to all this exposure was diametrically opposed. The Word of Christ found fertile soil in the heart of Mary. The Word of Christ found hard, impenetrable soil in the heart of Judas Iscariot. Mary was never happier than when she was seated at Jesus' feet, hearing Him speak of His Father and His kingdom. Judas's focus never looked beyond this realm. In response to the love that Jesus displayed to Mary, She would have freely given anything that Jesus asked of her as displayed by this extravagant gift in response to the love that Jesus displayed to Judas. He was never satisfied with Jesus, which is why he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Mary was moved by the Spirit of God to engage in this anointing. Judas was moved by greed to protest her act of love. And in the aftermath of the resurrection, Mary was likely counted among the 500 witnesses to whom Jesus appeared, confirming that her faith was well-placed. And in the aftermath of His betrayal, Judas committed suicide, fulfilling what Jesus had said of him, it would have been better had He never been born. 
But there's another comparison to be noted here. What Mary does is a shadow, a preview of what is about to unfold at the end of the week and an even greater display of extravagant love. With the same disregard for the public scorn that Christ knows will come, He abandons Himself for the sake of the one He loves, His bride, the church. In His surrender, He willingly lays down His life for her, publicly humiliated as He hangs naked from a tree, pouring out His blood in a way that anoints all those who belong to Him. As the only begotten Son of God, His sinlessness, His moral innocence before God spoke of an intrinsic quality of His lifeblood that was without spot or blemish in the eyes of His Father. There was a purity to it that was necessary if it were to accomplish what God desired. For God desired that it be limitless in its sufficiency to cover a multitude of sins. But it is not only Mary whose actions are a foreshadowing, for so also are the actions of Judas. And at the cross, all those who have not been satisfied with Jesus' portrayal of their version of the Messiah, they will let it be known that they are offended by Him as well as His extravagant gift. They will mock Him. They will verbally torment Him as He suffers. They will spit upon Him and cast insults at Him to increase His shame, to deter others from following Him. They will point people to Moses' own words in Deuteronomy 21, where he declares that any man who hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. Therefore, this Jesus cannot be Messiah. And they will indicate that everything He has done has been a complete and utter waste and they will reject the most precious offering that has ever been made on our behalf. Can you imagine how great is the offense to say to the One who created you that the life of the only begotten Son offered to you as a free gift of grace means absolutely nothing to you. Can you imagine how great is the offense to say to God, no, here, take my filthy rags as self-righteous acts instead. The world acts offended by Christ when they should be realizing That it's not their being offended that is important, but rather it is God being offended that is important. There is a reason, beloved, that there is an outer darkness where the wailing and gnashing of teeth consumes those who dwell there. For it exists for those who are so offended by the Son's extravagant gift that they want no part of Him. And so God grants them the desire of their heart. But for those who recognize what God has done in Christ, they are not offended by His being broken and spilled out. They see in His sacrifice a divine solution to the spiritual problem of sin. 
they see a gift that is so wonderful that they will give up all that they have and all that they are in order to have a share in it. We read a moment ago from Paul's letter to the Philippians in which he declares that all of the accomplishments of his life, all of the honorifics that he could have rightfully claimed, all of the stuff that made him an up-and-coming star within the Pharisaic community in Jerusalem, he turned his back on for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection and for the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering so that he might become like him in his death. Paul abandoned himself to Jesus Christ and gave to him his heart so completely that he likened his own impending death to a sacrificial drink that is being poured out. Let me ask you, does Jesus have that kind of an effect upon you? And have you been touched by the power of His resurrection to the point that it has reoriented everything in your life and nothing else matters to you save Him? If not, then pray that it does. If not, then turn towards Him all the more and keep doing so until like Mary and until like Paul, you are willing to sacrifice all that you have and all that you are that you might have a share in Him, that you might know Him thoroughly, as well as the power of His resurrection. For only then will you yourself be prepared to die. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together.